Welcome to Coin Flips and Controversies, an OrthoBullet's original series dedicated to exploring gray zone decisions in orthopedic surgery. Hey everybody, uh, my name is Jonathan Urasimides. Um, um, orthopedic sur hip surgeon in uh, Louisville, Kentucky, and um, I'm gonna, um, you know, host a um, uh, coin flips uh, meeting here uh, today over a case that I presented. Um, this coin flips is um, is sponsored by the Anti Your Hip Foundation. Um, we have a meeting every May uh, this year, uh, upcoming in May of 2024, is in Nashville, Tennessee, and um, and we're hoping to use things like this to uh, further get the word out and um, and get as many of you guys uh, to the meeting in Nashville with us um, as possible. Uh, again, Jonathan Urasimides, hip surgeon in Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, I've got three other great friends here, and I'll let them introduce themselves as well before we get into the uh, discussion. Neil? John, thanks. Um, uh, I'm Neil Sheth from the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia, uh, hip and knee surgeon uh, at Pennsylvania Hospital, and uh, looking forward to being a part of this. Thanks for having me, John. Awesome. Joel? Joel Matavale, Colorado. I did most of my practice in Southern California, where Jonathan, you were a fellow with me for a year and a star fellow and have carried hip surgery forward in a great way. I've been an anti-approach user and advocate since 1996. I'll contribute what I can, but uh, generally we stop uh, fat people at the border of Colorado and uh, send, send them back to Kentucky or other locations. So I think I had some of these uh, very obese people in uh, Southern California, but it, it's not common for me, but it's certainly a problem in the U.S. And Brett? <laughs> Thanks, Joel. <laughs> so, Brett Paraselli, I'm from uh, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Uh, did my fellowship in Ortho, Carolina. A uh, recent, uh, relatively recent adopter of the anterior approach from uh, a couple thousand posterior approaches. And, uh, look forward to uh, this discussion and thank you for having me participate. Awesome, guys. Well, the whole purpose of um, of this case in particular um, actually was to to drive controversy because this is a fairly controversial subject, um, you know, amongst you know ourselves, our peers, um, and so the whole reason I wanted to put it on here um, was because I knew I'd get blasted and people would be like, "What the fuck are you doing? This is ridiculous." But, um, you know, uh, that's the whole purpose of the thing. So let's start off with the case. All right. So I got a 56-year-old guy. Both his hips hurt. Um, you know, he's a just a normal human being. I'm not even sure he takes antihypertensive. So, you know, healthy guy, other than being big. Uh, he's an electrician. So he's got, you know, a labor type job. He's had both knees replaced um, in the past. So He's no stranger to um, to joint replacement. Um, let me click on. Here we go. Um, he is morbidly obese. He's five seven three forty, which puts his BMI at a shade over fifty three. Um, he's a half pack a day smoker, so we throw that on top of everything else. Um, and he's got hip arthritis. I mean, uh, so there's just uh, 
you know, he's got basic hip arthritis. So uh, I don't think we have a question about the diagnosis here, but I mean, uh, what do you guys, when you guys see somebody like this in the office, um, who obviously has a disease you can treat, but he's big and he smokes half a pack a day. How do you have an office discussion with these folks? Brett, I know you don't like smoking cigarettes, but um, what's uh, what's your story with them? I think number one is, is have an honest conversation with the patient. Now, this gentleman's 53 years old. He's morbidly obese. He's smoking everything that you said. You look at it, you know, I hate to say it, you know, as orthopedic surgeons, we like to talk about joints and this and that, but I actually have a conversation about their overall health. You know, just the basal metabolic rate to maintain 340 pounds is impressive. And this isn't somebody that comes in the office and you sign them up on the first visit. You have a talk with them. Hey, you got to You got to lose weight. You got to get rid of the nicotine. You got to keep moving onwards and, and kind of feel them out to see really what happens. This is somebody that I'm not going to dive right in any kind of surgical procedure. Yeah. And Joel, I know you don't see a bunch of big people in Colorado, but I'm sure you see smokers or maybe not. I mean, all they smoke is weed in Colorado. So, um, but um, what do you do with, uh, with smokers? Well, I think first of all, I mean, just as a, I'll just say as a, a general attitude in medicine, I feel like I'm employed by the patient. It's like you call somebody to do a job. You're calling me to do a job. And my, and duty is going to be to provide them information and for them to make a decision with me based on the information. So the guys with the, uh, the way you've explained this guy, I don't think uh, doing a hip replacement is out of the question, but you have to um, talk to them that uh, because he's fat and sometimes to tell somebody you're fat you know, and this is dangerous, you know, we're supposed to dance around and use euphemisms, but just, I mean, sometimes when you say that to somebody, they wince, and it's like a wake-up call, like to think, well, I'm big, you know, I'm a big guy, you know, or something, but you're fat, or you're obese, you're morbidly obese, and this is dangerous, smoking is dangerous, uh, and uh, I would if they would, I'd try to get them to lose weight. I mean, the, the one thing that I've gotten patients to lose weight with is paleo diet. And you can look up what paleo diet is, but it's actually by changing what you eat, patients can actually lose weight. So I would uh, talk to them about doing that. I'm kind of against personally uh, these bariatric procedures because uh, you're taking away part of a normal organ in the body and uh, I think people can be uh, be fat but be malnourished it, it really screws up uh, when when somebody is this obese they're actually not you said he's a normal guy but you're actually not normal when you're that obese it's already thrown off your body metabolic system so there is going to be a problem but I would certainly talk to them about weight loss. Uh, paleo diet's really the only way I've seen some of these guys. And if you tell me you can eat steak and potatoes and vegetables, you got to throw up pasta and bread and things like this. Some of the people can do it and actually lose weight. But finally, I think it's going to be uh, his decision based on the uh, dangers 
uh, of the surgery, the increased risk to go ahead or not go ahead. Neil, you're with one of the kings of uh, operating on uh, fat people. Um, at Penn, I assume guys like this roll in your your uh, office all the time. Every week. And, you know, you know, a couple of things to highlight. I mean, I don't disagree with anything that's been said. So, you know, John, this guy's a an electrician. He's unhealthy and he's a smoker. But you do a total hip on this guy, regardless of approach. And he has no complications. He's going to do fantastic and go back to work and do what he's been doing. Right. I do think that we have an, an opportunity here to optimize him, to get him in better shape. Because if you do a total hip on this guy and he has no problems, great. If he has an infection, that is now on you because of poor decision-making and poor recommendations to the patient, right? So I think we have an obligation to try to get this guy optimized as best as we can. If he can lose some weight, make some lifestyle changes, cut down on his smoking, I think all those things will help him get in the same position. This guy at 5'7", 340, he's never going to be 5'7", 160, right? He's not going to lose 200 pounds. But we could get him in a little bit of a, of a, in a better position so that we can minimize his risk of having a catastrophic complication. And the biggest thing that we worry about is infection. And something that Joel said is just because he's big doesn't mean that he's well-nourished and big, right? So he may he's going to be mostly malnourished. And a lot of the data that comes out from you know my partner and from Penn is looking at some of these obese patients is that it's really not the size that matters. It's the fact that they're malnourished and their albumin is in the toilet, right? So that's where they're going to have a problem with wound healing and, and, and other things. We have technology now that can help with wound healing. Um, but I think that we can optimize this guy before talking to him about surgical intervention. Yeah. And I think you bring up a good point about, you know, uh, weight, it's not a weight issue and it's not a BMI issue. I, I'm against this kind of BMI garbage. And that brings us into the next question because, uh, it is an issue of malnourishment on these, on these folks. Um, and my personal opinion on why big people get infected more, um, uh, it's not like a magic number. If you're under 40, all of a sudden you don't have any risk for problems and you're over 40 and you do have risk for problems. Um, it's malnourishment. And, um, and I think it's, um, it's surgical time. I think surgical time's the, the number one, um, you know, indicator for, uh, for infection. And, and I can do a fairly quick total hip. I just did a quick look back at the last six months in the last six months, I've done 54 patients over BMI 40 uh, and 12 were over BMI 50. Um, and the only infection I had was a revision. Uh, that's primaries and revisions. But I haven't, I didn't have a, now that's a small number. 50 something is a small number, but these people can do well um, if they have surgery that's done proficiently. But do you guys have a BMI number? Is there such thing as a BMI number or is this just garbage? Because uh, I think it's garbage. but. You know, I, I think well, in looking at this question, it's hard to answer that because there's a sliding scale here. Somebody like this comes in at a BMI of 53 and says, hey, I'm an electrician. Just as Neil said, they're working, they're out in the workforce, they're going to benefit from an operation. And they come in and they lose a significant amount of weight. And they come in and now they're 43. That's, hey, man, you put your, you know, and just what I tell patients. You put your effort in, I'll put my effort in. You know, so it's hard to have an absolute cutoff. If somebody, if 
somebody comes in and made a reasonable effort and they went to a dietitian, they did all of these things that are said from the podium. Uh, I mean, that then, then you get to step up as long as they understand the risks. Yeah, but you know what, Brett? Really you decrease their risk or just make you feel better that you made them lose some weight before you pulled the trigger? Yes, and yes. <laughs> I think you, you know, you do decrease their risk because by that, you know, you're decreasing their surgical time. You're likely increasing their albumin. You may have lowered their hypertension. You may have lowered their, you know, I, I like when people come in and say, hey, I lost a bunch of weight. I'm lightheaded because I'm on three hypertensive medications and, and it's, it's too much. They see their PCP. They're like, wow, you're healthier. I love those visits. No, yeah, but I, yeah, I think John's it's hard to say. Like I do have a cutoff of around 40, but if somebody loses 50 pounds, wow, that's great. But, you know, I think, Brett, you bring up another really good point, right? So you want your patients to be engaged in changing their own lifestyle. Like, I'm not saving anyone's life by taking care of their hip arthritis. This is a lifestyle problem, right? So I can help you with pain. I can help you with ambulation and mobilization. I can help you get back to work um, and be pain-free, if you're telling me that you're not engaged in trying to change your own lifestyle, if you have a problem or a complication, it's a hundred percent on me, right? And now our health systems are pushing on us, right? They they expect us to have zero infections and reoperations and readmissions, right? So I, I think um, I don't have a cutoff at all, uh, and I think one of the other things with cutoffs in BMI, and I think why BMI is a is a poor number, is that it's distribution of fat. You may have someone who's really obese in their trunk and like their hips are not that big. And we see it much more commonly in knees where they're really big up top and their knees are really tiny and thin. And um, so it's not really just a BMI cutoff, but I, I do want patients to be engaged. I want to be able to have an opportunity to optimize them to minimize their risk of having a problem. And again, like you said, John, if we can do this quickly, so that their wound is not open for an excessively long period of time, then we can get them through this safely so that they can get to where they need to be. Right. Yeah. And I think in my mind, that's what, you know, where, it, where it ultimately comes down to is, is surgical time. Big patients take longer, they get infected more. Revisions take longer, they get infected more. Wounds are bigger, open to air more, gets infected more. Um, and I think that's the, that's, that's, in my mind, the key reason, um, there's some, you know, metabolic reasons and wound healing. We're going to get to the bikini incision and all that, because I think that's made a big change in my practice. But, um, you know, we talked a little bit about smoking already. I mean, do you guys think smoking is a big deal as far as a hip? I mean, it's not like a knee where there's bone directly under the skin, you know, and you're worried about a skin, uh, issue and all of a sudden bones exposed. I mean, uh, do you care about it in a hip? So, uh, you know, I'll, I'll start with this, John. You know, I think that um, I think there's two different types of smoking. You got someone who's smoking five, seven cigarettes a day. That's like breathing industrial air. Right. I might as well be a smoker. There's someone who then there's the other people that are smoking two packs a day. It's a different story. Right. You have changed the I think the vascularity of some of your tissues and the delivery of oxygen to your tissues. Right. So I'm putting you that's putting us at risk for you having a wound healing problem. The other thing that I think is important, I think regardless of approach, is how you close a wound. You get these patients who are really obese, really, really deep wounds. And, you know, I, 
I'm at a, at a uh, residency program, residence fellows. You leave the junior resident to close this really, really big, deep wound. And they're putting a bunch of stitches in the fat, which have no integrity. And you cause a seroma. And that seroma causes wound problems, right? Causes pressure on the incision. So I think there's a couple of things. To me, smoking is not an automatic no, but I gauge the degree of smoking that they have uh, going on in their life. And if there are ways that we can get that to be better, then um, I think it's better for them. Yeah. It looks like most of the people that voted make, uh, say mandatory smoking maybe, cessation. Maybe Go I, ahead, Joel. Yeah. Yeah. I just make a couple of comments. Uh, I made the comment that, you know, I'm working for the patient. It's ultimately up to the patient. And it's kind of how I believe medicine should be. And I think, you know, Neil made some real good points that it's not the way medicine actually is. You see, the way medicine actually is, is that the surgeon's going to be responsible. Plus, the, uh, there may be a big cost burden on the hospital. So these are certainly important considerations. And I think I, I agree with these infection things. There's, uh, I just wanted to talk about a couple things that, um, maybe you don't think about with infection or people don't. One is prepping and draping. I think prepping and draping the patient is one of the most important things. And that's that uh, when you uh, make a uh, barrier of adhesive drapes that kind of make a rectangle around the wound, around where the incision is going to be made, they have to remain a, a very adherent to the skin. And so particularly with hip surgery, because we have these contaminated areas like the uh, perineum where we have, you know, the vagina or penis and testicles, you have the anus. And so we have to seal off these areas. And a lot of times with these uh, big overhanging skin flaps and panis, it's very hard to get drapes to really stick to the skin and seal off these areas. But this is kind of an important thing to do. Uh, another thing, probably with the obesity, is we talked about thickness of the wound. And when you have things like uh, uh, brooches, uh, instruments that are touching the bone, dragging over skin edges, this can uh, be an infection thing. And these are uh, a problem with obese patients. So, you know, you have to have an incision that's adequate length so you aren't dragging your instruments over it. And you really got to get the drapes well secured to the skin and very uh, uh, very good prepping. I think these are important things in preventing infection. Uh, I don't want to, I'm not out to attract all the obese patients in the world, but I think anterior approach has some definite advantages because the fat layer is much thinner over the anterior part of the hip than if you're going through the butt. If you go through the butt with a posterior approach, you have hugely deep uh, fat layers, which hurts your access. Plus, this is uh, can be a contributory to infection. I know we'll get into the incision later, but uh, I think anterior approach is an advantage. Plus, the patient then they aren't laying on the incision either after surgery. Yeah, and we yeah we're going to get in the incision. I think the next thing talks about incision, but I'm going to skip this poll. I'm going to click and just see what the folks said. Oh, not choose anterior traditional incision, just 10%, roughly 11% bikini. Um, but uh, I'm going to get into to the incision a little bit later and why and why my practice has changed because of, of my incision um, after I'd done a lot of a lot of hips uh, from a traditional one. Um, but 
uh, prophylactic antibiotics. Do you guys do, um, are you guys doing post-op oral antibiotics um, after surgery for high-risk patients? I am. I mean, I do two weeks of doxycycline, but I, I don't know if anybody else does. Yeah, John, I do. I do it for for uh, for ten days, um, and I, I do Duracef if they're allergic. I'll do doxycycline. Um, yeah, I mean, you know what? I'm not sure. I, I think there's other factors that you've already mentioned that are also important, right? I mean, I think if you if you do a a hip on a patient that's an obese patient, you get it done in less than thirty minutes, and the wound's been open for a short time, and you close it properly. Like I'm not sure you need antibiotics, right? Right. Um, but I I think that right now. Uh, the data from Medigini is, is pretty convincing, but there's some data coming out that says that maybe it makes no difference. Yeah, I figure it can't hurt. I mean, yeah, I mean, shit can't hurt anything. So um, I'm even considering, um, you know, doing, um, you know, oral TXA on revisions after surgery now and stuff to reduce hematomas because hematomas turn into seromas, turn into draining wounds, turn into infection. Yeah. And so, um, so anything I can do to reduce the amount of swelling, reduce uh, draining wound. And so uh, for the past month in revision surgery, I'm putting people on oral TXA afterwards. Yep. I mean, not sure it's good, bad or otherwise, but hematoma is my worst. I mean, I'm a stickler on blood loss as well. And maybe that's why I have good luck with fat people because you know, I have quick surgery and I really am a stickler on, on bleeding. Um, and you know, these bleeding is, is a huge contributor to infection in these patients because everybody always knows they bleed more because it's hard to find the bleeders. And so you give up on them. If you're like, Oh hell, I can't find the damn thing. It'll stop. It's just a oozer. Well, when you have like five oozers going, it turns into a hematoma. Yeah. So this, this is, um, you know, uh, intro pick of, of what, you know, my incision on this dude looked like. Um, so, you know, I've switched to, a, you know, a bikini style incision um, and really fallen in love with it. I, I've been doing it for a little over seven years on my, just my morbidly obese people. Um, but I switched about a year and a half ago to do it on everybody across the board. Um and I really, really like it. I've gotten, I've gotten used to it. It's nothing special. I mean, the skin's in a different orientation and then everything else is the same. Um, but, um, I, have you guys messed around with, um, you know, a bikini style incision at all? I mean, Joel, also, uh, Joel you, you're, we were doing PAOs when I was with you, we were doing PAOs through a Smith Pete. And then it seems like somewhere in the last 17 years, Everybody's doing <laughs> PAOs through a bikini. Are you doing PAOs yeah, through I a do, bikini or through an ilioinguinal? Yeah. Yeah, I do through so-called bikini. And so it's actually, it's uh, going oblique. It's a little bit distal to the iliac crest and goes across. And I, I use this primarily for uh, the female patients. They like the uh, cosmesis a little better. I think there is potential for a little more uh, skin sensation problem when you do it, at least mm -hmm. when I do the PAO. With the male patients, particularly if I have a muscular male and I'm doing a PAO, I'll do the classic Smith-Pete incision because uh, they aren't so con as concerned about cosmesis and I get a little better exposure. I've tried it. I've, I've done uh, a number of anterior hips through the 
bikini incision. I don't like the exposure as well, but uh, as I said, I'm, I'm probably a very small group of my patients are truly obese or morbidly obese. So I'm right. dealing with a little different population than you are. Yeah. Brett, what were you saying earlier, man? I, I still just do a traditional mm -hmm. incision on I, you know, I still consider myself, uh, as I said before, the posterior to anterior kind of guy. I think I, I will consider myself to be in the, the learning curve until I hit, you know, a thousand, two thousand cases. I, I think every time you do this approach, there's something like, wow, this makes it easier. Mm -hmm. Wow. I, I wish I did that in my last couple hundred cases. Mm -hmm. So I, I'm still a traditional, uh, traditional guy, like the extensibility of it. If, God forbid I need. I think there, you know, and I've debated on this, um, you know, with teaching, you know, cadaver courses and, and, you know, having residents and stuff, but I, I've almost switched my mindset to think that the best time to learn bikini is right from the beginning when, you know, you don't know shit anyway. So it's all the same, you know, it's, uh, you know, you're just trying to learn it. So it's, uh, you know, every, everything's new. So, you, you know, just learn it this way. And, and that way it doesn't seem like an oddity. Cause I mean, I did, I did over 10,000, you know, anterior hips through a traditional incision before I switched to the bikini and it really felt clunky to me because every, all my normal like workflow was kind of thrown off. And so it took me a while to get used to a new workflow through a different incision. Um, so I almost think it's good just to learn it that way to begin with, because uh, I don't think it's any harder. Um, it's just different. Yeah, John, you know, I, so I've done about a dozen or a dozen and a half of these through a bikini incision. And I started just because I had some thinner female patients and I'm like, yeah, I can do this. And it was no different. Like you said, the skin incision is differently like oriented, but then once you get down deep to it, you're doing the same thing. Maybe yeah. some landmarks are slightly proximal or slightly distal than what right. you're used to uh, as you go deeper, but it's pretty much the same thing. Like I haven't changed anything else. Um, yeah. I, I didn't see a huge difference and, yeah, you know, like, again, I'm really focused on and teaching residents and fellows. And I, I think when they're not comfortable with it and I'm not comfortable yet, then I'm not sure I'm helping them very much. Yeah, um, fair enough. But, you know, I'm at a thousand anterior hips, not 10,000 already through the anterior approach that I can, right, get, get to a point where I can start doing this routinely. Um, mm -hmm. I think the extensile nature of this is is pretty significantly more extensive you've got to do this big side flap and like lift this whole thing down if you need to get down and do something not so not so worried about the femur but if you have something wrong with the socket like you it's it's a bigger exposure and if you're not comfortable doing that uh, i'm not sure i would do it yet um, yeah. completely but you're at a different level than i'm at um with these cases let's um it's uh, the the extensile nature of it, I, I agree with you. If you've got if you've got something, you know, in the diaphysis of the femur, it's going to be you're going to have to make a you know if you have a periprosthetic fracture or something that's that's really distal, you're going to have to make a lateral approach. Yeah. Um, but um, but calcar wires are nothing, and and yeah. even even um, you know wires below the uh, below the lesser trochanter. I did um, I took some well-fixed implants out and did a spacer 
um, through a bikini just not less than a month ago. And I couldn't get the damn stem out. So I had to do an episiotomy of the medial, um, you know, femur approximately to get this damn stem out. And then I had to cable it, but I got a cable a good three centimeters distal to, uh, yeah. to let the trochanter through the bikini. Um, if you extend the incision medial and lateral, the longer it gets, the more open it gets. And so it gives you, you know, uh, more exposure, but it's amazing. I mean, and you never know until you get stuck in those spots. Cause I wasn't expecting it. If I knew yeah. I was going to do an episiotomy on the femur, I would have never gone through a bikini, but yeah. I didn't know that. And then, I mean, shit, that's how I've learned 99% of my revision techniques is getting stuck in a case and being like, well, here I am. What the hell am I going to do now? And, um, and you start figuring out stuff that can get done, but yeah. So it's, it's, it really, it really does work well. I think, you know, this showing a picture of the, the offset reamer. I think if you're used to using a straight reamer, um, that may not be feasible with a bikini incision. Okay. I, I mean, I think you, um, if you love straight reamers, I'm not sure you can do it with a bikini incision. I think you have to, to learn to use an offset reamer. Um, you just don't have the, you, you can't get the abduction on the, uh, on the reamer. Um, I assume you guys that have done bikinis have used offset reamers or have you proven done straight reamers? Yeah, no offset reamers. Yeah. Sure. I think it's reamers with any incision. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. I'm a reamer for always... guy. So I, it doesn't, you know, I, uh, to me, the bigger the patient is, if you have, you know, big incisions that are super, super deep and you got retractors in there, it does get difficult to introduce reamers. Um, but I, I ream without retractors. So it doesn't bother me a whole lot. <clears throat> now, let me just make one comment on reaming it. I always use straight reamers, but there's, uh, uh, just to comment, there's a fallacy that the reaming should be done in the direction the cup is going to go in. And okay. I think that's a fallacy. So yep. the, the reamer actually goes, shaft is going to go more perpendicular to long axis of the body than the cup inserter. So you need to be able to vary the reamer direction a little bit to get it to go in the correct direction. It has to aim somewhat in a cranial direction, but not as cranial as the cup's going to go in. So. Yep. I agree. Just, just keep that in mind. But but even and, even you're reaming with the offset reamer here, your your reamer, the ellipse of the rim of the reamer is is a high higher inclination than the cup's gonna go mm -hmm. in, even with the yep. offset reamer here. But I don't have experience with the really obese patients and bikini incision like you do. So I'll take no, care. but that's a that's a good point. And I shouldn't have said offset reamer. I should have said offset inserter because my reamer oh. is rarely ever like this reamer right here. We're going to go and look at my cup next, but my reamer is rarely in the same position as my cup, you know? Yeah. So yeah, I, mean, I, I yeah. I'm, would be complete agreement. You need an offset cup inserter. That's right. for sure. Yep. Yeah. yeah. So that's a, because so John, this, let me ask, this is, before we move on, John, let me ask you a question. Yeah. With, with having trainees, right, residents or fellows, um, you know, and, and I agree with Joel 100%, right? I mean, your reamer does not have to be in the same orientation as where your cup is being inserted because it's a hemisphere, right, that you're creating. Um, one of the things that I do like if I'm using a standard anterior approach and using straight reamers is 
teaching the trainee like what their tendency is to say, hey, put this where you want to put the cup, right? Put the reamer where you want to put the cup. And wow, your tendency is to be too anaverted. Your tendency is to be too vertical. We'll change that orientation because this is what your tendency is. How do you deal, I think, through the bikini incision, offset reamers? You're, you're adding a couple of variables when you have a trainee to get them to learn those tendencies of them of themselves to, to get it in the right spot. I'm not worried yeah. if you and Joel are going to put it in the right spot. Yeah, I'm trying to teach them. Uh, I'm really trying to teach them to understand the x-ray, you know, and and to, to really understand x-rays. And understand that the cup has to be put in when the pelvis is level. So how do you understand when the pelvis is level? You know, by looking at the iliohyaline teardrop relationship, the symphysis to the midline of the sacrum, um, and then understanding the x-ray on, you know, what's the medial wall? You know, the, it's the teardrop. You know, you got to get down to the teardrop. You know, you want the bottom of the cup to be roughly at the bottom of the teardrop for your proper hip center. And to really to look and I tell them, OK, when you're when you first put the reamer in and it's sitting super lateral because it's just entering the socket, because I, I ream with one reamer, you know, I, I try and ream with one reamer. So it's always sitting super lateral. I say, don't uh, put the reamer in the position you want the cup to be. Um, I say, try to imagine if you're on the, the path that you're on, the angle you're pointed at. When that reamer gets to the teardrop, where's the bottom of that reamer going to be? And you may need to, it may need to be more vertical because you want the bottom of the reamer to be at the bottom of the teardrop. And don't look at it where it's at when it starts, but picture in your brain when it's on that path, when it gets to the medial wall, where's it going to finish at? Because the reamer sets the hip center and then you put the cup in whatever position you want. Yeah, I, I think you are you brought up an extremely important point. I think with other approaches, especially if you're not doing it under fluoroscopy, I think there's a tendency to inferiorize your hip center, mm -hmm. right? Yep, I think what I've center. learned in the last thousand cases of doing, you know, 80% uh, of my hips from the front is my tendency was probably to medialize straight medial, which is a little bit too inferior, but now I've got the ability to change my angle a little bit so that when I get to that medial wall, I know that that inferior part of that cup is collinear with the inferior part of the teardrop to get my hip center to be exactly where it needs to be, right? So that's, that's a very important point. Yeah. Now, generally when I ream, you know, I have two retractors in, a cobra in the back, teardrop retractor kind of a, coming up front. Pick out a some kind of point in the acetabulum and say, this is the direction I want my cup to go, even though it's with my reamer. And I just kind of pick that direction, go in, and same thing you said with that inferior margin. And I, I do like the action shot of the reamer here, too. You like that? Yeah. Let me, yeah. <laughs> let me just say, Neil, I disagree with you that I think with when we do total hip, it's much more common for the uh, center of rotation to end up in a more proximal than normal position rather than more yep. inferior than normal. I think position. with a he was talking about with a posterior approach. Posterior Joel, approach. He's always talked to ream perpendicular to the body, and I think I see. I think it does lower the hip center, but I don't you know, know maybe, maybe I don't see so many posterior approach X-rays. Yeah, yeah, you know, Joel. But I, also, I mean, let I'm me just still... finish it. Yeah, the other factor is I think it depends on the size of the cup you put in. And with posterior approach, people tend to, in my mind, oversize the cup. They're trying mm -hmm. to get the 
big cup in to get the big head. And the bigger the cup you put in, the more it's going to lateralize and make inferior the center of rotation. But if you put yeah. in a cup that, uh, you know, goes inside the rim of the acetabulum, I see more often that uh, it's center of rotation goes a little proximal. I think that's fair. I, yeah, you know, I'm just trying to think of, of personally, like if I look at my posterior approaches and my anterior approaches, uh, I have plenty of x-rays where the hip center is a little bit inferior, right? It's gotten caught up on that ischium. Bone is good. I think I was right where I needed to be. Maybe my inclination's a little bit off, which makes it look a little bit more like it's inferior because it might be a little bit more vertical. Um, but I think with the anterior approach and using floral, I can really fine tune this to be exactly where it needs to be. I know that my x-ray post-op is going to be where I thought it was in the OR because I've got feedback uh, from the x-ray in the operating room. Yeah. You know, the only way, the only way you're really going to know if you're where your center of rotation is, is to superimpose the, the hip you operated with the operated hip or superimpose with image overlays, either that or the post uh, total hip x-ray with the pre neck cut x-ray. You have to superimpose these images yeah. and then you have to look at where the center of the head was uh, compared to where the center of rotation is. And if you're not doing this, I don't think you know where that center of rotation goes. You have no, to really I, superimpose these images and look. I think I probably get mine correct in a in north-south relationship, but I would bet, because I tend to medialize to the teardrop, I would bet my center of rotation is more medial than the person's mm -hmm. native center of rotation. Yeah, um, and I think And that then I make up for it with... with you know, stem offset, um, but, you know. Unless yeah. you know you're going to be fighting offset and all that yep. other stuff. And then you leave yeah, it last. One of the quandaries we have in total hip that we don't know about is particularly you get women with relatively small acetabulum and you almost always medialize the center of rotation just to get the cup inside the bony rim of the acetabulum. You do it in males a lot too. So what's correct offset, you know? We don't know. We don't know what correct offset is because maintaining, if you maintain the same femoral pelvic offset, the global offset, you're actually increasing the femoral offset. You're increasing the length of the femoral, so you're changing the hip biomechanics. Yep. So the way we do total hip, we're in a lot of cases, we, we really can't restore normal biomechanics. We're either medializing the whole hip a little bit or we're keeping the global offset and increasing the femoral lever arm, which changes hip biomechanics. And Joel, I would think that that's a bigger issue for small stature females like you're talking about, right? Because I think they're much more sensitive to offset than like your big muscular male that's got a big offset native femur. Do, you can you put them way out. Offset? Are you talking about global offset or femoral offset? Well, meaning like if, depending on where your hip center is, right? Your global offset's going to change. Right, but a female, a small stature female, is not going to tolerate a lot more well, increase in their global yeah. offset than a than a male patient. Yes, I don't think you should ever increase global offset. That I, I don't think you should either. I know I agree, but I'm just saying that I think I'm that just saying that some, that some cases, if you keep the femoral offset anatomic, you're going to reduce global offset. Yeah. And I don't, I don't really know. Right. If, if I'm given the choice of, of increasing or reducing, I always choose reduction. I, I do. I mean, especially in a small female, because yep. um, small females, 
they look in the mirror and they say my hip sticks out on one side versus the other. And, um, and you're talking about global offset, right? I'm talking about global. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Yep. yeah. So, talking about global. I don't, um, I always, if I've got the choice one versus the other, I'm always choosing less than more. Yeah. I agree with you. Okay. Definitely. Unless you got to fight instability. Yeah. We don't believe in that shit, man. Don't, uh, <laughs> believe in what? In instability that's a posterior approach myth that's a that's some that's the that's a boogie that's a, a a bedtime story that um you know posterior approach parents tell their kids uh, <laughs> uh, you have to increase offsets so they don't dislocate yeah, yeah. one of the things you throw out with anterior approach that's right one of the things you do have to fight on these big folks, though, even with an offset impactor, is you know you're still fighting that thigh, and um, you know, and you can see this is an offset impactor, and I'm still, I'm still struggling, and it's, and there are people that are so big. I did a BMI 68 um, a year ago that um, that I, I had to make an accessory incision and do a straight inserter through his quad and screw it into the cup in the in the socket to put the cup in because i couldn't get abducted enough but you know uh an offset impactor is absolutely and we already talked about it but i think is absolutely necessary um shit i didn't have a post-op picture of the cup i thought i would um uh, now john this for a bmi of 53 yeah that does not look like a yeah. huge thick layer of adipose tissue that well, i expected the, there it's on the front of his thigh so it's not um you know we don't we don't carry a lot of fat and flexor creases you know uh you know like behind your knee or in front of your elbow i mean you wouldn't be able to you know evolution has made it so that we don't have a bunch of fat there I, so that we can flex joints um, I, I, I get all that, but there, yeah. you know, sometimes fat is fat and, and it's there. But it's a, it's deep. It's, it, it, it is a hell of a lot deeper than a, than a normal size. Yeah, it looks, but, um, yeah. but it's, would, it's still make, nothing like a posterior approach. Jonathan, yeah. that looks to me like the Zimmer offset cup impactor and the Zimmer offset cup impactor is one of the biggest offsets I've seen. It's got a big lateral curve. So it, yeah. it mm -hmm. clears soft tissue a lot better than, some of the other offset impactors. So if, if that offset impactor yep. is challenged by this patient, there's a lot of soft tissue thickness there. Mm. And, and that impactor varied by about 30, 40% almost. We'll say that. It was Zimmer, Zimmer. That impactor that's the, Yeah, the Biomet one. Yeah, that the screws okay. onto the G7 cup. Yep. Yeah. Okay. But femoral exposure i actually don't think femoral exposure is much different from this from a bikini incision i mean this guy's gigantic and i'm using a single offset you know roach handle on him um if they're really if i'm really struggling this guy I didn't struggle a ton on but if uh, if i'm really struggling i use that that um handle that joel likes that um that medacta style upright um you know inserter handle uh because the belly it takes the belly out of the way um but um but i really don't think the femoral exposure is much different with a bikini incision i think that it's um it's every bit as easy um having the exposure as a regular incision the acetabular exposure i do think is a little harder though 
Um, and Joel, you like that single, like uh, upright, um, you know, Medacta old, um, uh, you know, well, no offset. It's just, it's oh, yeah. straight would, up and down. Yeah, I would just say that that handle, it's a straight handle. It goes perpendicular to the upper plane of the brooch. Yep. But that's from the design of Robert Judet in the 1950s. Mm -hmm. That's original, one of the original anterior approach handles that Robert Judet had. Right. Yeah. And I, I think uh, for, go ahead, go ahead, Brett. I was going to say, I, I think for a couple people who are watching this in, in the audience here, a couple things that I see on this that are really helping you out. One of which is, you, it looks like you have a little bolt on the, the femoral bar there. Oh, that's so, the extender. That's the extender. Yep, that's the extender. So, uh, you know, drop a comment on that. And I, and I think the other thing, if you don't have access to that extender right there, you know, another trick that, you know, sometimes you don't often think about is the table up, leg down, table up, leg down get a step stool. So I think if you could touch on that, that'll help uh, some yeah. of the people watching this on femoral exposure. Yeah, the extenders the, uh, with the, the OSI table comes an extender that can be put on non-sterily, um, you know, that, that goes on the post before you put the drapes on. Um, mm -hmm. And this one is one that's made by Enamed um, that you sterilize and you just have it in the packs and you can just lock it in whenever you decide you need it because you don't always know you're going to need an extender mm -hmm. this guy obviously you know but um uh, but some people you don't and you have to make the decision in the operating room when you're all prepped out and um and Inamed has a couple of uh two different sizes and it's just a little bolt that goes into the the femoral lift and then the hook snaps into it and it gives you an extra like four or five inches that looks like a great instrument i didn't know it existed yeah, it's uh it's it's the simplest thing on earth. It's just a right a square peg and a and a female square at the top and it just extends it. Almost like a socket wrench. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's just exactly it's like a socket. And um and you stick it in there and they have two sizes, a small one and a long one. And um, you know, the if you decide you you know are in the middle of a case and you're having you're maxed out your femur lift and need extra. You just have these things. We we have them peel packed in the surgery center, and I just get one peel packed and snap it on, and now all of a sudden I get an extra, you know, four or five inches of lift. Mm. Yep. Got it. Yep. So that's just the C arm shot. I don't even know if I. I don't think I have a an X ray yet because this guy was a stage bilateral. Um, that I did his first one and then posted this case like. Uh, three or four weeks after his first one, I just did his second one. Um, oh, three weeks ago, three or four weeks ago. So I staged, I staged him apart for your next question that you have six weeks. Um, you know, I don't know good, bad, or otherwise. Do you guys do stage bilaterals, and how far do you stage him apart if you're going to do stage bilaterals? I stage them six to eight weeks apart. Yeah, yeah. You know, usually two to three months, but again, it. It all depends on the surgery schedule, what they do for work and some, you know, stuff like that. Yeah. Self-employed electrician, you know, you do them six to eight weeks apart. He's going to be wanting to get back to work uh, mm -hmm. about two weeks after the second hit. Yeah. So he, I did a six week follow-up at the, uh, at the, 
you know, left total hip and, you know, so far so good, but, um, you know, we'll see these, these big folks can always turn ugly at any point in time, uh, down the road, but, you know, he's made it through two surgeries so far. Yeah. The x-ray looks really good, Jonathan. Yeah. And, and again, that cup, that cup position is not the same as my, my reamer, you know, to, to comment on, you know, Joel's comment earlier, the reamer was a lot more vertical, um, than, um, than this, um, than this, cup position um and i would say it's completely off subject but i think it's important if you're using a collared stem um i just i can't stress enough to people how important it is to to not get super super valgus or try to get straight up and down in the canal um this guy's pretty easy because he's got kind of a b b type femur but you want to hug that medial cortex you're you're your collar needs to be on, on cortical bone, um, for support. And especially with a fully coated stem, like, like this one, like Avenue or like, um, um, like Karai, like uh, polar stem, whatever it is company you're using. Um, you, you want to displace that, that mechanical load over the entire length of the stem and if you put it straight up and down, you're going to distal pot it. And when somebody puts a puts weight on their hip and they step on it, they're putting a varus load, a varus and axial load, but they're putting a varus load on because the head's medial to the stem. And so if you think in your head that varus is bad, and so naturally valgus must be good, that's the worst damn position on earth because this person's going to be loading it in varus every time and that stem's going to have micro motion or subside. So you want to hug that medial cortex. You want the collar to do something for you and it disperses the, the mechanical load over the entire stem instead of just loading it distally. And so, um, so I can't stress that enough. I try and talk to people about it incessantly. Everybody's still in this mindset. The varus is bad. It's the worst like piece of orthopedic dogma that, is out there um other than maybe stability checks but um you know it's uh it's one of the worst ones yeah jonathan i think one thing that's happened too is the uh, uh we get holdovers from cemented stems so people try to apply to on cemented stems and this is one of them where they're saying yeah. you can't put it in varus and so i think when cemented stems were done and you had a, a centralizer that uh, PMMA centralizer that you put on the tip of the stem to get this distal part of the stem centered, you'd center the upper part of the stem. And that was worked for uh, cemented stems, but now we're doing a different type stem. So you shouldn't um, keep that same dogma going. It, it doesn't make any sense. So, and just like, I think with anterior approach, we've evolved away from, a lot of past dogma and also stems change. We're going to continue to evolve away from uh, the dogma of cemented stems. It's a different thing. When I start started putting in on cemented stems, like uh, around uh, year 2000, uh, we didn't have the dual offsets. So sometimes with the stem, like you'd take a cry or another on cemented stem, uh, 
me and other surgeons, we purposely put it in varus so the patient would have more offset. But you, I mean, put it in an accentuated amount of varus so the patient had more offset, and it works. As long as it's stable, it would incorporate and it works. Now, now we're not doing that, of course, because we have the variable offset. Now, I think you bring up the important point is stability. You know, is is stability because you're looking right. for stability in the first six weeks. Once the implant has bone on it, then it doesn't matter if it's in varus valgus upside down. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. And the most mechanically stable position you can put a stem is in a slight bit of varus with a collar. I mean, that's. Uh, yeah, I think I just make one, uh, just bring up one exception to that. And you get patients, uh, for instance, with dysplasia patients, they'll have a very valgus neck. And so some of these patients oh. will end up with the uncemented stem and valgus just yep. because the uh, the medial curve of the stem right. is greater than the medial curve of the calcar. So they're going to end yep. up in, in, in a little bit of valgus, but again, just getting a good stability. But with that situation where they have a very vertical straight up and down medial calcar these are ones you got to be careful with they're the easiest ones to break the calcar on yep. you're broaching or inserting the stem but but in general this is it that more often the stem will be slightly varus i think yep well guys i think we we got to the end of this and we did in pretty good time um just want to thank everybody for uh for listening in and um and again, um, this, um, you know, uh, the purpose of this was, you know, of course, to present a case that would be controversial, get your all's minds going and, you know, listen to us, you know, bullshit about stuff. But um, um, the other purpose of it was to, you know, promote anterior hip foundation. And, um, and this year we're in Nashville, Tennessee. And, um, you know, May of 2024, you know, go to the AHF website. Um, you can find us on social media, uh, but get registered and come out. And it's going to be an awesome couple of days of uh, talks. Let's say thank you to OrthoBullets too, which yeah. is a uh, growing, excellent platform for uh, surgeon education. And uh, we're, we really feel happy that they're working with us on this education tonight, as well as our educational project in Nashville.